Hello, 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 and welcome to another episode of Break the Cycle with me, your host, Joshua Smith. I hope everyone's having a great Wednesday night. I'm glad that you guys are still sticking around to watch episodes of me uh, try not to boomer audio every single night, uh, you, you know, now that we're doing more than one show or two shows a week. So it's been really exciting. But anyways, as usual, let's start off with some sponsors. Uh, we got Lorenzotti.coffee. Uh, for all your Italian coffee needs, delivered directly to your door, bring the taste of Italy home. Like I say, every night it is delicious stuff. It's the best coffee I've ever had. Uh, Julia is crazy about it. We are definitely switching out the Dunkin' Donuts coffee to start using Lorenzotti instead. TopLobster.com for all of your great graphic needs. This man is amazing. If you've seen my thumbnails for my show, he draws those all by hand. Uh, his newest work of art is a picture of Michael Malice dropping white pills all over you with some dripping angel wings. If you haven't seen it, it's beautiful. Michael Malice, I know you're watching my show. Uh, we would love to have you on Break the Cycle. I think it would be an interesting talk. Uh, if you wanted to come on and just troll people with me for an hour, that'd be great too. But definitely go to toplobster.com and lorenzotti.coffee. Uh, you can get a 10% discount on both of those things for uh, using the, the the word BTC at checkout. That's short for Break the Cycle or Bitcoin, if you guys haven't caught on to that yet. Um, and also, anthemplanning.com for all your emergency and crisis planning needs, whether that's for your business or independently. Uh, these people are amazing. In fact... Uh, our guest may know a thing or two tonight about Anthem Planning, um, but they're, they're great. Go to AnthemPlanning.com, Delaware Mises Caucus people. They're doing a job that the government would love to take from you uh, for a much cheaper price and probably way more efficiently. So anyways, on to the show. Uh, tonight we have a great guest. She is the owner of Anthem Planning. We just talked about this. Uh, she's the editor of The Future of Disaster Management in the U.S., the sole nationwide study that sought to understand the effects of federal financial intervention on the development of local emergency management capacity. Yes, I had to write that out. That was a lot. Um, she's also a homeschooling mom of two and one of our executive producers for my show, Break the Cycle. She is Amy Lapore. How are you doing tonight, Amy? I'm excellent, Josh. I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. Thank you so much for coming on. It's, uh, you know, one of those shows that I was really excited for. You guys are uh, big supporters of the show. You're doing great work in, in Delaware. You're doing great work uh, personally with your business. So I'm excited to kind of delve into some of this stuff. Now, you're obviously a lot smarter than I am in these subjects and probably other subjects too. But um, can you tell us a little bit of, uh, more about your background in depth? What, what led you in the direction you've gone concerning disaster management in the U.S.? And more importantly, the study that you did. Yeah, ab absolutely, Josh, and, and thanks for asking. So um, my background is primarily uh, in emergency services at the local government level. Um, I My career spanned um, emergency management roles 
um, emergency medical services, and then administration uh, generally in local uh, emergency services. And my, uh, you ask a little bit about uh, what sent me down that road, and I had just a series of interactions during my career. I, I um, had a lot of interaction with federal grant funds. I had uh, um, interactions with the community that put um, government as leader and did not put citizens uh, in, in, in charge of their own lives. Um, and came into contact really with a culture that was built in emergency services um, post 9-11, uh, which bolstered, um, really bolstered local government in their, um, their want to build bureaucracy, their want to build empire, really. Um, and, and again, as you and I have talked briefly, all of this has, has really flown under the radar um, it's built an infrastructure um, that I, I, I fear will emerge at some point, and, and um, we can get into that later. Um, but, but my experience working in local government um, led me to really to go back to school, to, to have the time to research in depth um, and to be able to answer the questions uh, that I was seeing. So um, I ended up um, going to University of Delaware to, to study for a bit. Um, and um, studied public policy primarily um, with a focus on uh, emergency services um, and, and more narrowly um, disaster management um, and how local, state, and federal relationships, um, how they were dictated by the federal grant stream um, and what, uh, what the implications really were for local government because I was seeing it every day in my own work. So... Um, you asked a bit about the study. Uh, I was curious to know from um, the the kind of local bureaucrat perspective of an emergency manager, um, which I had been at one point in my career. So I wanted to to poke around at my colleagues and to ask them some questions about how they interacted with federal grant funds and and what the utility of those grant funds were, because recall that they are coming from the Department of Homeland Security. So so backing up just a bit. Um, I was working in emergency services at a time when uh, FEMA had been subsumed by Department of Homeland Security. And so FEMA turned from a focus on all hazards, disaster preparedness, so focusing on things like hurricanes and um, flooding generally, to really focusing on um, the domestic war on terror. And so there was a turn uh, post 9-11 in local government emergency services that focused those personnel uh, internally in this country, the, the big see something, say something mentality, a mentality that bolstered um, the, those kind of low level bureaucracies um, and empowered them with uh, a mission that is probably not appropriate for, for local government to undertake because at the point where you are funding uh, those positions in local government with federal dollars, those are essentially agents of the federal government uh, executing their, you know, their domestic war, essentially. Um, so so my want to, was really to understand this, and I wanted to understand it from my, my prior colleagues' uh, perspective. So the study went um, nationwide to nearly every county uh, that had a publicly discoverable email address, uh, 2,138 counties at the time, I believe. And, um, and we simply asked questions like, you know, what, what is the utility of these federal dollars you are receiving that come from the federal government? And what we ended up learning is that the, the use of those dollars was simply to 
to permit the office to exist. There was very little response that uh, the emergency manager wanted to um, empower the community, right? And this is something that you and I spoke again. We talked about wanting to push government down to the very lowest level if it must exist at all. And so you hope to learn about local government that um, it is community oriented, it is citizen engaged. But what the study unveiled is that the apparatus built by essentially the Department of Homeland Security, because that is where 50% of emergency management funding comes from at the local level. And now it's been a couple of years, so I could be a couple of percentage points off. But I say that to point out that the, the folks who are in local government are funded by federal dollars largely. And their response to our study was not to use those dollars to grow capacity of grassroots groups. Their response to our study was really to say, I need those dollars to exist. And my function is to exist. They agreed that they were dependent on federal dollars for their mere existence. They agreed that they would not have the um, equipment training or manpower to exist absent those federal dollars. And so there are some implications now because Again, this most of this ramping up. Now, FEMA had been centralizing for a number of years, um, but most of this ramping up was uh, with post 9-11 uh, war on terror dollars uh, filtered through the Department of Homeland Security. And um, the implications here are simply that now we face... Um, unprecedented lockdowns in the name of public health. And, you know, emergency management was working on these projects with public health for, for the duration of, of kind of their post 9-11 activity. So there are some implications, which I think we'll get into for, for COVID. And, and there may be some implications as well for, for second amendment rights here. Sure. Yeah. You, you've, uh, you've explained it kind of like they were setting up for a local domestic war on terror. Um, how, how do you think that has affected uh, you know, the, the COVID, do you think that, that, uh, municipalities and, and local government and, and, and more importantly, county government, I mean, are they, are they really at the whim of the federal government because of these dollars, because of this DHS? I mean, it's, how does that work? So at the whim of is the best I've heard it described. Yes. So, Sweet. um, I did something based, right. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, and I, and I, I did not go into the study, um, or into any of the, the, the writing knowing that, but I had a gut feeling. And the response was was that not only are they dependent on those federal dollars, and, and so for me, this is the most striking part. We asked if they believed that the receipt and use of those dollars limited their ability to intervene in their community in the best possible way. So as an example, are they able to make the best possible decision in the middle of a disaster, right? Or in spending a large chunk of money on equipment. We said, are you, do federal dollars at all limit, again, your, your ability to, to make sound decisions? And overwhelmingly, their response was yes. So not only are they relying on these dollars to exist, right? And, and um, do you remember Senator Tom Coburn used to publish a, a, a book about the waste in government? I, I have never read it, but yes. Do you, so, so I, I miss it. It's uh, it was an incredible uh, piece of work, and it was an annual uh, report that he published. And 
his waste report um, often would um, focus on DHS funds and, and their utility at, at the local level. And um, he pointed out that people were buying like snow cones and um, Bearcat armored vehicles and long range acoustic devices, right? And these things were used during the G20 protests. So um, the, the usefulness of these dollars at the local level really, again, expanded equipment and supply into kind of the war on terror realm, but rendered the local governments um, dependent on federal dollars for their existence. And you and I both know once a bureaucracy exists, it is loath to make itself smaller or to ever go away. Uh, and so, so yeah, dependent on those dollars and then uh, in turn um, at the whim of and really serving as agents of um, a, a heavy-handed federal government in terms of management of emergencies. Sure. And some people would call, you know, I've been called a conspiracy theorist many, many times in the past for saying, you know, these local governments are going to do, you know, they're going to do whatever they're told because they do rely on, you know, the federal government and people are like, ah, it's conspiracy. It's conspiracy. You know, um, what do you think the impl implications are that for, for, you know, we have these sanctuary cities, right? Um, places for where they have immigration sanctuaries or they, now we have uh, local sheriff's departments, especially saying, hey, we're not going to um, implement these uh, these infringements on the Second Amendment in our county um, and we won't prosecute, we won't arrest, whatever. What do you think the implications are going to be for um, municipalities or, or counties that, that do do that kind of stuff? Do you think it's going to harm them? I mean, are they going to start not receiving those federal dollars anymore and then and then they start might change their their tune yeah i want to say that that under both democrat and republican administrations this has been a threat depending on the type of sanctuary right sure. that that they would remove federal dollars and for some of us we go eh, right <laughs> like maybe this is a good thing because this <laughs> Yeah, I mean, this this level of, of dependence, I think, um, and, and to some extent, of course, the state has it, too. I, I think often this is found in like the in public education, um, the state really receiving a large chunk of federal dollars. And it seems so innocuous that those tax dollars would trickle back down. Um, but the way they trickle back down is... Um, really to make the state and local governments beholden. And, and my focus was local government mostly because it kind of flies under the radar. Um, so to answer your question, the implications for jurisdictions that make um, make the decision to serve as sanctuaries um, or really start to push the issue of nullification sure. um, around certain issues, uh, certainly with the right administration um, could, could find themselves... Um, void of federal dollars. Um, nobody wants to really play that game, though. I mean, the, the purse strings are pulled again by the old parties. And, and no matter how they try to draw distinction, it seems like um, the history of disaster management in the U.S. has been one of increased politicization. So um, with each president nearly, um, the number of declared disasters has risen through the roof, right? Because if there is a hurricane that touches your state, you don't want to be the senator that did not lobby for those dollars, right? Mm. does not matter what party you are from. And we have come as a country to expect that type of response from FEMA. And this has been part of the problem um, 
I don't know if you recall, but both the Bush and Obama administrations in their responses to, I believe, in both cases, large large hurricanes, um, referred to their mobilization as the federal family. And they said things like, your federal family is responding. True. Um, that's, I don't know, that, that's disgusting. <laughs> <laughs> I don't really have like a better way to say it, but but I was... I want to say I was still working in emergency services at the time. And 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 even then I knew in my gut that we should not refer to the federal government as our family. Right. And that it is really a dangerous message to send when FEMA says, don't worry, we're coming. That tells the population I need to do less in my home to prepare my family. And it enables state and local governments to focus on bureaucracy building, not focus on kind of grassroots level community uh, capacity building. So uh, the implication of those federal dollars is is kind of a, a of a multi-layered thing, but but a, a bit nefarious, really. Sure, sure. And we I mean, we know as libertarians, we know that state and federal agencies, especially uh, typically they bumble emergency planning. I mean, you know, this is the, one of the biggest reasons that we're libertarians is because we know that the government is way less efficient at doing this kind of stuff um, because they do exist to grow their power. I mean, they do exist to, to take more money off the backs of, of workers around the country. I mean, you know, it's, it's this, it's that kind of like socialist double-edged sword, right? Like, you know, we got socialists out here. They're like, we need more government. And the government's like, yeah, we need your more power. So, you know, but, um, I mean, how can local governments, uh, be more adept to, to take care of these, these crises and, and, um, you know, plan for emergencies in their cities or counties? What's the future of, of emergency planning that's not just private like you? But, I mean, you know, if, if we have to have local governments, what do you think the future holds? I mean, what do you, what do you think is important for them to focus on? Well, I see no, no devolution of responsibility in, in near sight. So I'm, uh, that's a difficult question to answer. But, but everything you just said is how I came really to um, to full-fledged libertarianism. So I started seeing these things happening around me in my career and that the federal government and state governments would bumble emergencies and that um, in my own line of work at the local government, there was really a mentality around being, um, I don't know the best way to say this, but really a mentality of being um, elevated over the citizen, right? So... Um, and it's really a hard, a hard thing to pin down, but, and I don't have any data to back this one up, but I do think that the post 9-11 influx of money and um, a focus on turning towards kind of tactical planning and SWAT teams at the local level and everybody wanting to get geared up, I think that that has really caused a cultural problem um, in local government. And so maybe a, a positive move for local government would be to kind of dial some of that um, militarism back sure. and focus. And but I but really to answer your question and the way that I kind of came about all of this is I was digging around in research and I came upon a place called the Mercatus Center. Are you familiar with their work? I'm not. No. Yeah. So they are um, they are um, free market. Um, and, and some, to some extent, kind of Austrian economics-focused um, research center at George Mason. And 
um, they have a series of of scholars there who write solely on disaster management and how it can be done by communities. So, of course, I believe that that the best way to to manage disaster is is in your house um, and then with your neighbors and then with your community. That is is probably the most effective way it can be done. Um, but unfortunately, I, I think that FEMA has sent the message that they will respond into communities with dollars for your small business and with money to help if your house floods. And Josh, there are insane stories of things that the federal government has has kind of paid for at the local level um, in terms of um, emergency management and, and you know, um, at the very end of my career, you know, they were um, looking at beachfront homes in hurricane-prone areas and million-dollar homes, but FEMA would pay to put the hurricane shutters on the windows. Um, there, yeah, there. My dog is walking behind me. <laughs> there's a. Ch- I'm so sorry. There's a, yeah. Um, That's okay. But but there is some, some really. In- Say looks, hi, Libby. Looks like a good. Girl. Looks like a good. There girl. is. She is some really some insanity around what they're willing to pay for. And and this is not um, this is kind of separate and over and above the kind of DHS filtered funding. But, but, you know, FEMA will pay for your hurricane shutters on your million dollar home. FEMA will buy out a homeowner who gets the wrong kind of bug underneath their house because it's a protected species. Right. They'll buy out whole neighborhoods for this type of thing. So they have really sent a message to the population that they will respond into communities and despite what we know, right, that they kind of bumble it and the private sector can do it better and nonprofits can do it better. Um, there, there really is still kind of, I think, that that belief that that there's a safety net. And um, and I think what the what I walked away from my career with that was the hardest was um, in 2000. And I want to say it was 2010 it was Tropical Storm Lee came through a very small town um, where we are from and devastated the entirety of the main street, devastated small businesses and devastated um, homes. And, you know, my, my work was to work with those homeowners to kind of let them know what to expect next. And um, having to explain to some of them that they just didn't quite meet the threshold of, of, having the federal government be able to kind of pay them off for their damages and, and knowing that, that some of their neighbor was able to meet that threshold or um, that, that a business could not get a, a loan, but government was able to receive some public assistance for street clearing. And, and, and so it's really easy to think in terms of like dollars and organizations, but these are like people's lives. True. These are, um, individual business owners or homeowners and you know having to tell them that that what they believed would happen because it happened other years because this was a flood prone area that they believed that someone was coming to save them and because of that i think there is a lack of preparedness in homes sure yeah absolutely it sounds like it sounds like fema's kind of like the crack dealers you know the first one's free and then uh and then we'll be there for you anytime you need us baby you know don't worry we're gonna be there definitely what it seems yeah, like the- it's a little bit like that. So, so a really good example of, of kind of first ones free is, um, 
my dog a little a good example of that is snowstorms so fema will pay for your snowstorm so if you have to have roads cleared if you um meet a certain threshold if you go like more inches than more inches of snow than you got the last time they'll pay for it as long as it's a record-breaking snow and so here are local governments not preparing in their coffers for really small-scale response sure why should the federal government pay for clearing your county roads? It makes absolutely no sense, but it absolves local government of any of the responsibility really to, to plan for these things. Now, of course, there are jurisdictions who do a good job, right, or, or better job than others. But overall, the response has been to rely on the federal government for clearing the snow off of your roads, really, or putting your hurricane shutters on your beachfront house. Yeah, not here in Iowa, though. I mean, we're ready. We're ready for the snow here in the Midwest for sure. Yeah. But I've definitely seen yeah. lots of examples of this. I mean, the the the, the California fires, obviously, uh, the the uh, cold front that hit Texas recently. I mean, Texas was just like, what do we mm-hmm. do? What do we do? You know. Um, so so I can definitely I could see that. Apparently, someone in the chat said that my crack dealer uh, analogy got a little creepy. I apologize for that. Um, <laughs> But <laughs> but yeah, I've uh, I've definitely seen some I've seen some uh, some examples of that in my lifetime. But can you give us some more examples? Where I mean, Katrina obviously was a big one. What what are some other big examples of that? Do you know? Yeah. So the the benchmark events um, that that came after nine eleven are um, when when really this message was in play um, that the the bureaucracy for disaster management in the country was kind of bloated and ready to respond and and could handle. Obviously, Katrina comes to mind um, where the government response um, was a failure, but the there are highlights from the private sector and their ability to mobilize quickly and respond. And um, the same can be said for another benchmark event would have been Hurricane Sandy, right, which which devastated kind of a different area of the country. Um, and and the most interesting things that I always kind of pull out of, of those lessons are the times when um, you hear the stories of government holding up private sector mobilization, right? So Walmart and Target send uh, tanker or send trucks in with with bottled water and somebody holds them up because they can't get in and, you know, they don't, the roads are closed and, um, or they're being told to coordinate through some, um, government operative, right. And, and they just can't get to the right place. There are some of these horror stories as well, but, um, you know, it, it seems to me, um, that with each event kind of starting, starting a bit with, with September 11th, but but certainly um, large events that followed that emergency management has just been increasingly centralized in the federal government. It is it has been so bad that the federal government itself has seen the error of their ways. And so they make um, somewhat feeble attempts at at reconciling the the local and state role. one of their attempts is called an, a, a whole community approach. And the intention of the whole community approach, um, as it is written in FEMA doctrine, was really to um, to place upon the local government agents um, the responsibility of bringing in other sectors. So bringing in the private sector uh, and bringing in um, non- nonprofits. And they're 
the the existence of the program, right, the existence of that doctrine says that they know, right, that centralization has not increased effectiveness or efficiency of, of this country's ability to respond to disaster, um, but that they then charge government personnel with uh, divvying out a little bit of power to the private sector to make them feel good <laughs> is a little bit of a slap in the face to the incredible private sector response to disaster. Um, so... One of the things I've been thinking about lately is um, you have probably heard the term, you know, public-private partnership uh, around the idea of um, the COVID passports. Sure. So I think that the um, existing uh, COVID passport project in New York is uh, would be referred to as a public-private partnership, right? So spurred at the public level and expected to be implemented um by the private sector. And, and one thing that should alarm people is that this idea of public-private partnerships has been alive and well in emergency management circles for many years and was always intended to give just a little bit of power to the private sector. Hi, kids. Do you like violence? Yeah. Are you sick to death of pussyfooting around the truth while being constantly fed lies by news and big tech tyrants? If so, then come join me, Dan Smots, on The System Is Down, where we get weird, have fun, and dig into all the dangerous taboo topics like conspiracies, politics, religion, culture, current events, and everything your family just prays you don't bring up around the Thanksgiving dinner table. And I know that reality is scary to some people, so if you're easily offended, just ignore this and go back to making cat memes or whatever. But if you're ready to change the world for the better, come join me on The System Is Down at tsidpod.com or wherever you get podcasts. That's T-S-I-D-P-O-D. Com because the system is down and truth is taking over. And so I would maintain that that one of the scariest things about um, COVID passports, they're horrific on, on their face, but, but one of the scariest things is that it's being done in a, in a way that people can say, well, um, it's a private sector organization who is intending to implement this and, and it's not a government program. Well, this is a government program. And I don't know the details, but it absolutely, you know, there there will be pressure placed on pr the private sector. And if it operates anything like the public-private partnerships that I have been privy to or that or the, the public-private push from FEMA, um, it is intended to give just enough power and just enough say to the private sector to make it look like there is shared partnership there while maintaining all of the power and authority at the level of government. Sure, sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, level zero in the chat just said, let's see, what did they say? Says, I want to, I want to be paid. DHS is W's worst to domestic legacy. Would you agree there? Yeah, I mean, so W has a lot of horrible foreign legacies. So yeah, so we can agree <laughs> that. Yeah, so if we're looking for a horrible domestic one, um, yeah. Uh, but I, I so that is absolutely the case. I think I agree with that. DHS and its constituent parts is a nightmare for this country. Um, reduced capacity to respond to disaster generally. Um, um, not in terms of dollars, right? So I have a, you know, I was looking at, at my, my old notes and, and really only 10 years after um, September 11th and, and the, the, implementation of Homeland Security, there was $35 billion spent on just extraneous equipment for local governments. That's those Bearcats and True. snow cone machines and tactical gear and, you know, cool dude stuff, right? So 
so yeah, I mean the, the the implementation was horrible. The the concept is is unbearable. Um, but FEMA um, FEMA was really um, focused on centralization before uh, Homeland Security. So this you know and is in the nature of federal government, right? To kind of usurp and centralize and dole out the dollars and and in return for that really fealty and and dependence is what they receive from from local and state governments um and and i don't think that the the local government folks even recognize it as such right they don't you know most of them aren't evil as it turns out <laughs> they're pretty pretty good folks and they don't even know that they recognize it as um is really um, operating as agents of the federal government uh, under local cover um, and, and really kind of fealty and, and reliance on the federal government to, to, to execute a job that is best done by community. Sure. I want to I go back to something you said uh, uh, just a, a minute ago about the uh, public-private sector alliance thing going on here. Um, what I've noticed, which I, I've talked a lot about this with people who are like, you know, if we were to abolish you know, the welfare state, let's say the welfare state, okay. Uh, nobody in this country is charitable enough to want to take care of these issues. And my, my response is always that like, you know, it's, I think it's some absurd number, like 80% of private charities that try to open in the market are, are basically regulated out of the market in the first year through bureaucratic red tape. Um, and, and meanwhile, we have things like the Red Cross and I mean, just let's throw out some other ones, Susan G. Coleman. We have these things forced down our throats that have like an 80% overhead, right? Or more. Um, and so when a crisis happens, like something in Texas or one of these big hurricanes or something like that, it always seems like they're like, oh, well, we got the Red Cross on it, you know? And then the Red Cross shows up with styrofoam boxes that have like three little tiny pieces of food to give people. Um, and everyone thinks, well, that's the private charity. I mean, these, these things really work in tandem with the government already. Right. I mean, Red Cross, stuff like that. I mean, the ones that the, the government is forcing down our throats. I mean, they're really already almost part of the government at this point. Right. I mean. So I cannot speak to the um, funding stream of the Red Cross. But and this is not just uh, with regard to disaster response, but nonprofits adjacent to government generally are funded by government. True. Um, and, and I think that, um, you know, nonprofits are, if they try to kind of do an honest job, um, they're often pushed out of the market by government, um, Funny. capabilities, sure. right? And so, so I'm thinking right now of like more of a social services, um, organization, right? Who kind of responds in to assist families, um, maybe who are, who are after disaster in need of supplies. Um, most of the adjacent nonprofits. Um, no, most is not fair. So many of the kind of adjacent nonprofits who work closely with government do receive um, in some form government funding. Absolutely. It's not the case for all of them. Sure. Um, but it is absolutely the case um, that. Th so there's also something around um, the seat at the table. So I'm, again, I'm not familiar with the funding streams of the Red Cross, but the Red Cross does have a seat at the table with, with kind of the big guys in government, right? So when you um, pull together your staffing for an emergency at the local government level, you do that in something called an emergency operations center, and that acts as a nerve center for disaster response in a local community. And you pull in your um, 
your emergency manager, your EMS chief, your public health officer, your DPW, your Department of Public Works guy, um, you know, uh, someone who can speak to to kind of uh, roads clearage or roads clearing, and and you pull in your Red Cross folks, right? So they they have a seat at that government table. Um, so they have a voice that even a small nonprofit operating independently won't have. And the other thing that goes on in a room like that, um, which pushes out community, um, if you think about something like a hurricane where there is extensive damage uh, in neighborhoods and there are um, businesses and homes that um, need to be salvaged quickly because there's water damage or there is um, unsecured items, right, because your windows are blown open and your door is blown open, those um government officials working in tandem with the elected officials in that local jurisdiction tell the homeowner or the business owner whether or not they can go back into their home. And they do so based on um, what, you know, so, some perception of safety, but but that is the extent to which they have command um, of, a, of a local jurisdiction and really command of um, how, how, how people are able to operate uh, their, in their own lives during disaster. Sure, sure, absolutely. So uh, that's a lot of really great information, but all of this stuff that you've done, this this road that you've gone down, your, your delve into emergency uh, management and crisis management and local government and how FEMA works and everything, it's led you to the Libertarian Party, right? You're now, you're now working with the Mises Caucus. You are the uh, state coordinator for Delaware, I think, right? I am. I am one of three. Yep, one of one three. Of three okay. Uh, you know, I I started with the Mises Caucus back in 2017 when there was about 50 of us in a Facebook group, and we had no state organizers. And you know, I traveled to 40 states with the the Mises Caucus target on my back. Um, so it's really beautiful for me, especially, and I know, especially even more so for Michael Heiss and, and, and Jeff Douglas and these guys who have worked their asses off uh, to to build this thing. Um, uh, to see that there's so many people involved in every state. I mean, we have, I think we have 48 states organized now. Um, what's going on in Delaware? I've been seeing the pictures. You guys are a growing group. You have a wonderful meme maker in Dave Casey who will be on the show, I think, next Wednesday. Um, he's, he's one of my favorite guys in this whole movement. If Dave Casey, if you're out there, I love you to death. You're amazing. I'm a big fan. Um, but you guys are really doing well there. Can you talk a little bit about what's going on in the Delaware Mises Caucus? I, I would love to. It is my current favorite topic. So um, I want to say in very early January of this year, um, Dave and I were speaking and, and we spoke with, with Michael Heiss. And, um, you know, Dave had been wanting to uh, ensure that um, a measurable caucus got up and running in Delaware. And, and he and our, our partner state coordinator, uh, Chris Velrath, um, were, were starting to rally people. And we started to to recruit and we started to talk to like-minded folks. Um, a series of people had worked with us on the Jorgensen campaign. And, and, and you know, there were some head-scratcher moments um, and walked away going, okay, well, you know, w where are the like-minded people um, um, that we can kind of pull from? And um, the caucus was in early January really measurably didn't exist. It was zero active members. And I think I onboarded our 22nd member, um, late last week. Nice. And, um, everyone is with varying levels of engagement. Um, but we have a core leadership team, um, that 
that works harder than any other group of people I have ever met. Um, I have had, you know, uh, several jobs in my career and I run a, a, a very small business now and, and we hustle, but um, these people hustle harder. And so the, the, the colleagues of mine on the, the Mises Caucus kind of leadership team, um, you asked what we've done. In, in a matter of about four or five weeks, we stood up uh, a mechanism to respond to legislation, both kind of with, with comment, public comment, as well as in, in writing. Um, we've stood up with a, an, a very active Twitter uh, and, and now a Facebook page. We have held community cleaning events. Um, That's all those we, pictures, by the way. Was, I was very happy. Yeah. Uh, and and really what we have done, what we have been most successful at is to stand up a way to organize ourselves and to focus on kind of project management work in a way that works for us. Um and, and that has led to, again, standing up the, the capacity to respond to legislation. Um, and we've made a, a bit of our, a name for ourselves here in Delaware already in, in just maybe 10 short weeks, right? We're being invited into coalitions um, all of the time. Our people are busy every evening <laughs> doing something. And it's, and it's gotten pretty crazy. Um, we, um, you know, hope to run a couple of candidates for board positions at the convention in June. Uh, and, and I mean, the, really, the work is incredibly expansive. We are, um, you know, working on documentaries right now. Have have a couple big secrets, but um, but but really, I am surprised every day at the work ethic. When you find like-minded people who have the same cause, and they all come together and say, "We're not going to be stopped," right? We're only going to grow and we're going to do really incredible work in the community and the work ethic is off the charts and not something I have ever seen before. Sure. So how, how's the current, um, I mean, Delaware board for the Libertarian Party of Delaware and the members, I mean, how have they received you guys? I know Sean um, personally, I've had lots of conversations with him. Um, so, and I know he's been in the past somewhat sympathetic to the, uh, to the Mises caucus. I'd imagine he's pretty stoked to have more help in Delaware as it used to be like five people in a living room. So, um, I, I'm pretty sure that he's pre he'd be pretty stoked, but how have they received you guys? Have they done, have, have they been pretty happy about it? Yeah. Well, you're spot on. Sean has been incredible and continues to be supportive. Um, I think, you know, there is always trepidation around growth. So we are at 22 members now, and I want to say the bulk of them are new, right? So we have not just recruited internally, but we are bringing new We have brought, you know, Republicans have changed their registration. Democrats changed their registration. People who are small L's are, are big L's now. Um, and, and I think there was some um, trepidation around the pace of growth. And I think that when you build something as the current board has done, when you spend your life at it and you build it, um, that there is, of course, concern when new folks come in, especially, you know, I, the rhetoric of the caucus is incredibly strong because we are motivated. Um, but but in Delaware, um, we seek partnerships. Our members are not just active in the caucus, but fill out nearly every committee and work group that can be filled out on state and county boards. Good. So we are working side by side with non-caucus people all of the time. So I, I, I hope um, that the trepidation passes. I hope that um, we are 
um, increasingly seen as partners and that we, we are able to kind of continue our good work. Sure. Yeah, I agree. And I think you guys have a good state for it. And I think the people in Delaware, uh, prior to the the growth of the Mies Cox. Like I said, I think they were good people. Sean, especially. I know that David Hines also came from Delaware before moving to like Idaho or something. And he's one of the yeah. board members of the, the National Mises Caucus. So uh, they didn't hate him. I doubt they hate Dave. Dave Dave's an unhateable person unless you're a fakertarian at this point, I think. Um, but uh, yeah, that's great to hear, man. I, I really am very, very stoked uh, to hear that because like I said, I've, I've been good friends with Sean for several years now. And, and so it's good to hear that there's not a whole lot of fighting in that state it's not like nevada where you know the mises, <laughs> the mises caucus is basically going to have to get about 60 people and walk into the convention and be like no no more you know what i mean you guys can't have this anymore it's over uh so it's, it's I'm, nothing like nevada yeah i'm glad to hear that and i didn't think it would i know the like i said i know at least three or four of the the delaware members i've done a when i was running for chair last year i did a a, a skype call with all of them pretty much every member of their board and um uh, they seem like really good people, so I'm glad. I'm glad to hear that there's not as much friction as there is in some other states. But you also, uh, you guys have a pretty good. All the Delaware Mises Caucus people that I've talked to over the last several months, even some of the newer ones, uh, you guys all seem pretty level-headed, and it's not like you guys are going in there fighting uh, to take the party away from people. So I think that's a good thing. Um, let's talk a little bit about homeschooling, because we, you know, for those watching, everyone knows I have seven, well, six kids that live with me, a grandchild that lives with me, two of them are infants. Uh, one child who doesn't live with me, unfortunately. Um, and we, you know, when we first got the kids, we were, they went to, they hadn't been to school in several years. So we put them in public school, but they were having to be homeschooled while in public school with a laptop and they needed help. One of us had to stay home every day. Um, and so it's something that we throw around, you know, if, if it's, you know, if the, the, the podcast does good and it is doing good, um, and I still have my job, then we may go back to homeschooling and letting Julia homeschool our children. Cause they, they really, we think they would do better. Um, but I mean, how, you know, how's it go for you guys? Is it, is it harder in, in Iowa? It's very easy to homeschool. They don't have any weird like regulations or laws. You just say, we're homeschooling our children and they don't, you know, they don't do anything. Um, is Delaware the same? Delaware is the same. We are incredibly lucky for all of Delaware's faults. This is not one of them. We are able to, to homeschool our children. Um, we are able to, um, attune our, our curriculum and our content to, um, build on kind of family culture and, and, um, what the unique needs of our children are and what their unique interests are. So we are not necessarily unschoolers, um, but but we certainly um, permit some latitude for for the kids to figure out um, what what their interests are. And I say kids, so we have one that is that is traditionally school aged. Right, Reagan is um, seventeen and is in her last year of high school right now. Um, and then our little guy is four. And so he is kind of that pre-K age where we are starting some some kind of nominal academics. Nice, nice. Yeah, I think it's great. I really do. Do you guys do you guys use have you used any of the Ron Paul curriculum, though? That's the important question. Mm -hmm. So I, I actually um, I think that we will with our son, um, with our daughter was a really it has been incredible. She um She's a, a, a strong character and we wanted her, you know, we had only a year with her left before she um, made big adult decisions and, and potentially left the house. And we really wanted to work on, um, on character. Uh, and I think 
we did not use a curriculum with her. We we asked her her interests, right? And and we um, then offered to her some of ours. And and each uh, Dylan and I have have taught courses to Reagan and worked alongside her. Um, and as she did things like um, work through the Maps of Meaning lecture series that Jordan Peterson is so famous for, which has been a kind of a, a corner piece really of of our family life. Um, we wanted her to leave um, our home with an appreciation for for his work and his message. Um, and you know, we, Reagan's gym classes, CrossFit at least twice at least twice a week, right? We want her to work hard not only mentally but but physically as well. Um, we so we have Im- kind of imposed upon her the rigors of adulthood um, in this last year, and and some some benchmarks to meet and some uh, tests to pass um, as she kind of encounters young adulthood and and really absent. Um, the ability to homeschool and absent being in a state like Delaware, which has um, kind of permissive um, and uh, uh, accommodating rules for homeschooling, we would not have been able to do that. But I think that we will probably use the Ron Paul curriculum for our son. It's really good. It really is. There's some really good stuff in there. I think that's something that we're, if, should we go that route, it's definitely something we'll be using as well. But what you're saying is that you let um, the Red Skull uh, teach your, teach your children. I guess you haven't been on Twitter yeah. lately. Have you been, have you noticed this? Uh, I am. Uh, we've already ordered our t-shirts. <laughs> Hail lobster. Hail lobster. Oh, that's right. We Hail were talking, lobster. we were talking about it in the Patreon chat. I totally forgot. Uh, for those of you who don't know, we have a discord server chat with all the patrons in there. It's pretty, it's pretty cool. I enjoy it. Um, it's, it's not as crazy as some of the other ones, but I think we got about 40 people in there or something now. So it's going pretty good. Um, so, so what's next for you, Amy? I mean, what, what, are, what are you going to do next? I, as far as, uh, you know, you're talking about trying to get some board positions in Delaware, uh, emergency crisis, homeschooling, uh, are, are you going to be running for any of those board positions or, or, uh, maybe public office? <laughs> Um, that's an excellent question. I anticipate that I will probably run for a board position, but those conversations are still kind of in flux. So, um, that will be a hard one to answer right now. Although I do absolutely, I I will be running for, for some officer position. Um, what's next for me? It's our business is making a little bit of a strategic turn. Um, the, the bulk of our work right now is, is in large scale project, project management and my business partner slash husband, um, is, is an RF engineer. Uh, so we are, um, focused kind of on, uh, technical work, but I like the human side of things very much. I like working with people. And something that we we excel at is really working with organizations who struggle to bring their people to new technology. So that's kind of our sweet spot. So I think we'll we'll be making a little bit of a strategic turn with with Anthem um, toward um, potentially working with biz- other small businesses that are are um, merging technologies and have to onboard their their folks with new technology. And so kind of where. Uh, where growth and technology and human psychology meet <laughs> and where there are issues that flare um, and um, ways that you can plan and prepare for those are it will, will be a sweet spot for us and a place where, we're, where we'll seek to kind of make this strategic change in our work. So that's probably the next big thing. Nice. Other than that, I got 
I got these kids and these dogs and other creatures. And I know so. all about having these kids, man. Mm-hmm. Trust me, I know all about it. And uh, <laughs> we hopefully we will be able to also be having these dogs soon. Now that the uh, snow's gone, we can talk about getting a puppy. The kids, I paid, I paid the pet rent. You know what I mean? I paid, I paid the the, the deposit for a pet and we still don't have one. So I, I think I got to get these kids a dog, but that's a lot. It's a lot to take care of, you know? It's, it's a whole lot, but, but they do add something that would be missing without them for sure. I agree. I agree. So, uh, why don't you tell everyone where they can find you at? Yeah. So as you pointed out earlier, I do not have a Twitter account. <laughs> I'm on, I'm on Facebook. Um, and you can check out the company at anthemplanning.com, uh, or you can catch us at the Delaware Mises Caucus as well. Yeah, absolutely. The Delaware Mises Caucus on Twitter is kicking butt though. So, you know, yes, our Twitter team kicks butt for sure. I love it. It's because quickly becoming one of my favorite, uh, Mises Caucus Twitter accounts, uh, definitely up there with Connecticut. Who's been really good too. Um, and several other states, but, um, awesome. I really appreciate you coming on. This was a a great talk. I learned a ton. I hope the people that watch this, uh, definitely have learned a ton. Um, but we appreciate you. Thank you for the support of the show. You and Dylan both, uh, becoming executive producers through Anthem planning, go check out anthemplanning.com. Uh, especially if you're a business owner, right? That's, that's the the most important thing, right? Uh, Business crisis and emergency, but, uh, you guys do all kinds of stuff, right? I mean, it's not just, we, Yes. Yep. Yep. All, all kinds of stuff for sure. And Josh, thank you so much for having me on. You are also doing incredible work and we are very proud to support you. Well, I appreciate you very much. Thank you. And you guys have a wonderful night. Yes, you as well. Take care. All right. Another episode in the books. Amy is amazing. She is very, very, very smart. Uh, I, it was almost hard for me to keep up, which isn't hard to do cause I'm not the smartest guy in the world, but, uh, uh, that was a great episode, man. I really enjoyed it. I hope you guys enjoyed it too. Let's talk about sponsors before we head out. Uh, Lorenzotti.coffee, of course. Uh, all your Italian coffee needs delivered directly to your door. Toplobsta.com. I need to make it very clear that he's not just a sponsor on the show anymore. He is like my partner in this endeavor. He's amazing. He has made the brand so much better than I thought it could ever be. Uh, give this man your money for Lorenzotti and Top Lobster. You can use BTC at checkout to get a 10% discount. And of course, executive producers and sponsors of the show anthem planning uh anthemplanning.com who uh is owned by our guest tonight amy lapore um doing great work in emergency planning and crisis use them for all of your emergency needs uh i want to talk to you guys a little bit about the patreon i put out a post this week um, asking you guys to uh, uh, sign up for the Patreon if you could find it in your hearts. Uh, I gave some long story, but I, I do mean it. This this thing uh, this thing means the world to me because it's it's kind of giving me back some of my life with my children. So if you have the opportunity uh, to go to patreon.com backslash break the cycle JS and sign up for any tier there, there's some cool stuff, cool swag you can get. Obviously uh, the $5 tier and above gets you into the discord chat server, which has about 40 people in it right, right now. Uh, I always try to ask the discord chat what questions they'd like to hear from guests uh, before the show goes live. So um, lots of cool perks. So if you guys wanted to sign up, I would be forever grateful, obviously. Um, and so with my family, but, uh, yeah, what's coming up next. We have, uh, the schedule there, uh, next Friday, uh, this coming Friday is Spike Cohen, uh, 2020 Libertarian party vice presidential candidate. Also the host of my fellow Americans, uh, muddy waters for freedom. And then Tuesday, we're going to have the great ace Arkist on. I am so stoked. Uh, this man is 
quickly becoming one of my favorite voices in the liberty movement. He's amazing. He just started a podcast called Serp Gang that is not political. It's actually very, very funny. I think you guys would like it. Check it out. I think they just put their first episode on uh, Spotify is where I listen to it. It's pretty good stuff. So, uh, yeah, that's it for tonight. I uh, appreciate you guys. I will see you on Friday for the Spike interview. Uh, But until then, don't forget to break the cycle. Due to legal reasons, I just have to explain. The lyrics of my last song may seem to contain a violent call to action in the verse of the brain. But I just landed in Minecraft. The helicopter part was in reference to GTA 5 and the things you do. So any violence you commit, I am not an excuse because I just landed in Minecraft. Where Trooper is my friend and he's constantly cold. Accusations of incitement getting totally old. Make your own choices, yeah, you have control Because I just landed in Minecraft Obviously I would never advocate force Unless it's due process and a trial, of course And if you're convicted, we will make you a corpse In Minecraft, just in Minecraft There's nothing I mean, you know it No product finish, get to close your COVID Holy shit, I think I'm a poet